Putting the Con in Constitution Dear friends, as mentioned last week, we will now begin a series titled Freedom Studies. In this series, we will pose and answer many very interesting questions pertaining to freedom in all of its frail and fickle forms, and we hope to have some fun along the way. For again, what is freedom without fun? Right, socialism. So let's get on with it. The first question to be addressed in our series is this. When the delegates from the colonies met in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 to draft the Constitution, why did they begin by taking an oath of silence until the last one had died? Ah, yes, that dusty, venerable, handwritten document of a bygone era, that former relic of American civilization, that intellectual product of a quaint agricultural time, when life was simpler, no electricity, no Velcro, no iPad, when presidential inaugural addresses contained words of more than two syllables. I am speaking, of course, of the Constitution for the United States of America, as inscribed by Jacob Shallus on parchment and currently on display in the rotunda at the National Archives Museum, guarded by a very serious young Marine and ensconced behind bulletproof glass for viewing by solemn tourists who gape in awe as if beholding the Mona Lisa. No one living has met Mona, and just about no one living has read the Constitution, so one can only surmise that public fascination for the two must contain equal elements of adoration from afar. Under Article 6 of our nation's supreme compact between we the people and the public servants whom we feed with our taxes, the Constitution calls itself the supreme law of the land. Here is what it actually states, and I quote, This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. If there's a higher written law we Americans are to abide by, please be sure to inform your author immediately. It pleases me to no end that the Constitution was not written in disappearing ink, for we have but to read it today to know what it said when the ink dried. But alas, something is rotten in Denmark, or I should say in the District of Columbia where today's ever-expanding colossus of a federal government is supposed to be restrained by a constitution that we were told was intended to create a limited government. Colossus versus limited. Ever-expanding versus restrained. Clearly, something has gone very wrong here. But were things maybe a little ginned up from the beginning? How exactly did our national playbook come into existence? Furtively and on the down low, that's how. What's that? What did Phillips just imply, that perhaps there is more here than meets the eye? Indeed there is, isn't there usually? It all began, dear friends, when delegates from the 13 original colonies met at the State House, now Independence Hall, in Philadelphia on May 5, 1787. To do what? Sorry, not to draft the Constitution. That's what we were told in school. But then again, our teachers probably attended public school, too. The colonies already had their own form of government, a confederacy of colonies, each of which was still a sovereign nation in its own right, under a continental congress which had its own formational document. It was called the Articles of Confederation, ratified by the colonies on March 1, 1781. The first president under the continental congress was John Hanson of Maryland. That's right, John was our first president, not George Washington. 
The delegates were dispatched to Philadelphia by the Continental Congress with the sole and specific authorization to, quote, make better the articles, unquote. And why did the delegates need to make anything better? Because among the various powers granted under the Articles of Confederation was the power to enact taxes. The problem was, our first Congress was powerless to collect the taxes it imposed. That's because there was no central army. And there's nothing to motivate a farmer to pay his taxes than a visit from a well-armed platoon. So off went the delegates to discuss how to make better the Articles. And did they do that? Not on your life. The first thing the delegates did upon convening in Philadelphia was to shutter the windows, draw heavy drapes, meet on the second floor to prevent eavesdropping, lock the door, and post a sentry. They then proceeded to take an oath among themselves that nothing that transpired that summer, not a single spoken or written word, was to leave that room until the last attendee had died. Did they mention this in public school? Funny, we, we all must have missed that day. I, I have a theory that these things are taught only on the days we all miss. But let's continue. The delegates did not spend a single minute making better the articles. They proceeded in private, closeted away from the rest of the world, to create an entirely new form of government from scratch. And might I add, without the slightest authority to do so from their respective state legislatures. George Washington sat up front as secretary of the convention. He wore his finest false teeth, the heavy ivory set that made one's jaws ache if you opened your mouth too often. Word is that he sat there like a great stone statue, keeping an eye on things to make sure it all went the right way. Everyone knew this is the guy who would become the first president. It was in the cards. James Madison took extensive notes on everything that was said. Every time someone rose to be recognized and to speak, James wrote it down in his own unique shorthand. This compilation of all the wrangling, argument, debate, and compromise that went on throughout that long, steamy summer has since become known as Madison's Notes on the Federal Convention. One would think, and please forgive me if I'm missing something here, that a bunch of honest guys who only wanted to do the right thing would have been eager to have everyone know what had transpired and right away. Actually, no one would get to read those notes for a very long time, not until after every attendee had assumed room temperature, which, coincidentally, ended up being Madison himself, who died in 1835, 48 years later. Call me crazy, but this doesn't sound like good faith disclosure to me. It sounds like secrecy. It sounds like, dare I say it, conspiracy. By agreement, upon the close of the convention, Washington took those notes home with him and squirreled them away at his estate in Virginia, knowing that no one would dare hurl accusations of skullduggery at the great general, now venerated as a near deity for having so heroically led the colonies in conquest of the mighty British Empire. By the end of that hot, sweaty summer, the Federalist coup in Philadelphia was complete. How heady and historic an opportunity to create your very own government to amass so much power and take your seat at the table of nations. Yes, these men intended to govern wisely and well, but they intended to govern nonetheless. At the time of the drafting of the Constitution, Thomas Jefferson, an ardent anti-federalist and advocate of states' rights, was in France as ambassador from the colonies. When Jefferson first read the Constitution, he is said to have expressed dismay that the ostensibly limited government which it promised to provide would almost certainly one day consolidate into a single, all-powerful executive as tyrannical as any king. So much for checks and balances. 
Jefferson feared that a single representative republic as large as he envisioned America one day becoming would never stand under its own weight, that Americans would be better served by a loose confederacy of republics like, well, the Articles of Confederation. Patrick Henry boycotted the Philadelphia Convention, fearing that a Federalist coup was in the works and proclaiming, quote, I smell a rat, unquote. For more, you can visit ismellarat.com. Here is what the great patriot and fiery orator had to say, and I quote, If we admit this consolidated government, it will be because we like a great splendid one. Some way or other, we must be a great and mighty empire. We must have an army, a navy, and a number of things. When the American spirit was in its youth, the language of America was different. Liberty, sir, was then the primary object. But now, sir, the American spirit, assisted by the ropes and chains of consolidation, is about to convert this country to a powerful and mighty empire. Unquote. After Washington had been ensconced as the first president, Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense and other incendiary pamphlets that ignited revolution in the minds and hearts of millions of colonists, wrote several scathing private letters to the new president. It seems that, among other things, George had taken to riding around in a lavish coach drawn by fine white horses decked out in plumes and other finery, as if America's new president were more like, well, a monarch than the chief officer of the executive branch of a limited government. But the Federalist coup had seized the day, and the Constitution, its crown jewel, became ratified on June 21, 1788, by the ninth required signatory, New Hampshire, which repeatedly had refused to sign until a Bill of Rights had been added. Just four years earlier, in 1784, New Hampshire freemen had enacted their own state constitution, which contained Article 10, titled Right of Revolution, which states, and I quote, Government being instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the whole community, and not for the private interest or emolument of any one man, family, or class of men. Therefore, whenever the ends of government are perverted, and public liberty manifestly endangered, and all other means of redress are ineffectual, the people may and of right ought to reform the old or establish a new government. The doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish, and destructive of the good and happiness of mankind. Unquote. Article 25 of the New Hampshire Constitution states, quote, Standing armies are dangerous to liberty and ought not to be raised or kept up without the consent of the legislature. Unquote. Would one realistically expect ideas like these to be taught in the public schools? Has any government in history ever found it to be in its own self-interest to inculcate in its citizens the very principles of liberty which might one day cause them to rise up against it? The Constitutional Conventioneers managed to keep a lid on the Federalist takeover until the last one was dead. But let's not call the convention of oath-bound plotters a conspiracy. That sounds a bit too harsh. Let's call it what it was, a premeditated Federalist coup. Out with the old king, in with the new. As for the Constitution itself, it isn't quite dead yet. On life support, with a feeble pulse, yes, but it's still breathing. And where there's life, there's hope. In closing, let's consider this quote from Thomas Jefferson, a year before his death in a letter written in 1825 to William Giles. Quote, I see with the deepest affliction the rapid strides with which the federal branch of our government is advancing towards the usurpation of all the rights reserved to the states and the consolidation in itself of all powers, foreign and domestic, and that too by constructions which, if legitimate, 
leave no limits to their power, unquote. Yeah, Tom, 